my psychiatric residency was at MUSC all of 1974 through 1976. My last year was done in group therapy. I am partial to hospital treatment and I am willing to take on almost any patient regardless of their diagnosis. The major diagnosis and diagnostic categories I treated are schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. These are the three most likely to have delusions. Some clinicians call the most intense delusions hallucinations, which are expressed in the most severe cases of these illnesses. The best known name in group therapy in this country is Irv Yellow, who has been at Stanford University for many, many years. He wrote many books, initially on group therapy on an inpatient setting and some on outpatient treatment. He is also an existential psychotherapist and wrote several novels relating to existential philosophers to his group therapy. In his novels, some titles being When Nietzsche Wept and The Schopenhauer Cure. In hospital psychiatric inpatient units, 99% of the patients treatment includes group therapy, usually on a daily basis. My initial experience in group as a medical student involved AA meetings. On the unit where I did my rotation, there were also a number of addiction patients who were seen in AA group. There are three types of AA groups. One is open, anyone from the public may attend. Closed, attendants want to become sober. And third, 12-step specific work groups. In some ways, there is a reduction down to the individual person in his progression of groups. The emphasis shifts from group-based dynamics to open groups to a more individual process in 12-step groups. Once the individual has achieved sobriety and is in recovery, the 12-step is to help others do the same. From the interest that it created in me about group when I did my residency at MUSC, the program offered us a, re a resident group with a psychologist in our department that would be our group leader. I found this to be comforting and exciting at the same time. It carried me on to almost all my work during my career. For me, approaches to treatment outside of the hospital revolve more around group and family therapy than individual therapy, adolescents in particular. I found adolescents hard to treat without group and family sessions. There are some parallels, I think, seem, that seem to exist when you have group therapy versus individual therapy. In individual therapy, the patient is talking to a parent. Or in group therapy, they are talking to a family all at once. In individual, they regress to their childhood. In group, they regress to adolescence, which is a more volatile stage. Other examples are family therapy versus individual therapy. Parent and adolescent as toddlers. 
that are in the context of separation versus individuation. The toddler is the individuation from the mother figure. An adolescent is separating from the family and becoming part of the social group. According to Freud and others, groups start with family, religion, individual, social life, national culture, country, association, and then the world. That's the progression. Although these transformations of allegiance to an athletic team can also be seen similarly, becoming more intense in junior high school on on through college. From then on, as group gets larger, the attachment gets weaker. Although I did both individual and group therapy, my personal preference was not to see the same patient in both at the same time. Many excellent therapists do see both, but the reasoning behind keeping them separate is the same as an adolescent with their own family. The children start to feel as if another one is the favorite, which in fact occurs unconsciously. It also ends up with a group therapist unconsciously pushing the group members they see in individual therapy during the group sessions to express their conflicts. In family and in couples therapy, I make an effort to see the designated patient before the family. I don't see the rest of the family or partner individually because everyone that decides what person you see first assumes you are on that person's side, which is important, particularly in adolescence. Unconsciously, you do attach to the first person above the others. And without evidence, you assume that the parents are the first individual or unable to, to parent properly. However, this is a misconception and is probably the therapist's excuse and way of repairing their ego by blaming the parents, the patient's parents. To return to process group, the group leader in England is called the conductor. It's a parent figure and the group members fill a number of multiple niches pertaining to roles in the family. In my view, it is interesting to think of Adler's theory of psychoanalysis and assign roles of the children's hierarchy in the family. He attaches this to their birth order. It is important to cut down on clicks within the group made from outside of the group, either previously or outside contact during the period of time that members are part of the group. This is different than the family of origin but it makes these clicks observable by the therapist as well as the group members. Generally, the therapist announces some rules during the first part of the first session. For me, the main instruction was not to touch each other, either in anger or sexually, in or out of the group. No touching, neither physically nor sexually. Many therapists also do not want foul language in the group. I do not believe in this rule. My instruction is that foul language implies anger and the group has the right to question that group member about what is bringing up their anger from in the room brought on by the regression. Anytime there is a more than a meeting of an authority figure and subordinates, a process group in business or and our community organizations, for example, occurs 
but without pre-rules and instructions. As Irv Yalom suggests, the best measure of a successful group is how much cohesion there is developed between the group members. He gives several other less important measures. I don't remember them. <laughs>